You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Some observations on the Mueller report, in particular its insights into what two specific GRU units were up to. Someone is doxing Iran's oil rig Cyber Espionage Group. A French government messaging app appears less secure than intended. Old Excel macros can still be exploited. And what were the WePro hackers after? Gift cards, apparently. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, April 19th, 2019. The U.S. Special Counsel's report on Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election was released in redacted form yesterday, finding insufficient evidence of collusion, that is, conspiracy and coordination, between the Trump campaign and Russian intelligence services, and offering no recommendation on obstruction. The Mueller report's conclusions about Russian operations are unambiguous. The GRU's Unit 26165 did the hacking, and the Internet Research Agency managed the influence campaign. The report also concluded that the GRU's Unit 74455 retailed the results of the doxing through its subsidiaries DC Links and Guccifer 2.0 and through a sympathetic WikiLeaks. It's perhaps not unreasonable to note that WikiLeaks, for all of its pose of disinterested commitment to transparency, has never shown much disposition to similarly traffic in discreditable Russian material, like the Panama Papers. Much the opposite, in fact. So, not a wholly owned front like DC Links or Guccifer 2.0, but pretty close to being an agent of influence. The report contains a good bit of information on how the GRU worked. It began by spearfishing personnel in the Democratic National Committee and the Clinton campaign, and following up that phishing expedition with credential theft. Once inside targeted networks, the attackers used Mimikatz to harvest credentials. They used X-Agent for screenshots and key logging, and W-Tunnel for data exfiltration. Middle servers were used to obfuscate the destination of the traffic. While the Trump campaign thought it would benefit from discreditable material so released, the investigation did not establish that any members of the campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russians. That's true of both the hacking and the subsequent social media campaigns. According to the report, the investigation did not identify evidence that any U.S. persons knowingly or intentionally coordinated with the Russian organizations. 
The report noted that collusion is not really a well-defined legal concept. It's more a journalist's than a lawyer's term, and so the report explained that what people call collusion, the investigators treated as a combination of the legal concept of conspiracy and the less formal concept of coordination, which lacks a settled legal definition. The investigators approach their task within the framework of U.S. federal conspiracy law. Since coordination appeared in the document appointing the special counsel, the report explains that the investigation construed coordination as requiring an agreement, tacit or express, and that coordination required more than two parties simply taking actions that were informed by or responding to one another's actions. The discussion, we note, seems to be all about the GRU, Fancy Bear, with its FSB colleague Cozy Bear not earning a mention, unless it's buried obscurely in the report's 448 pages and we've just overlooked it. Still, one bear is more than enough. Iran's APT-34, the hacking group also known as Oil Rig, is itself being doxxed. A telegram channel called Read My Lips is dumping the group's tools and some of its identities online. Wired compares them to the shadow brokers. Whoever they are, and neither disgruntled insiders, opposition groups, nor foreign intelligence services can be ruled out, their declared motive is exposing, quote, this regime's real ugly face, end quote. Alphabet's Chronicle, Google's security corporate sister, has been watching Read My Lips, and they confirm that the tools being dumped do indeed appear to be oil rig kit. The doxing group has so far published not only tools, but also evidence of the intrusion points used against some 66 organizations oil rig has targeted. Also dumped are the IP addresses of servers Iranian intelligence uses, and, more troubling for those so targeted, the names and photographs of people Read My Lips says are working for oil rig. The doxing group explained, quote, We are exposing here the cyber tools, APT-34, oil rig, that the ruthless Iranian Ministry of Intelligence has been using against Iran's neighboring countries, including names of the cruel managers and information about the activities and the goals of these cyber attacks. End quote. The French government recently introduced its own in-house messaging service, CHOP. Messages in CHOP are encrypted end-to-end and they're stored domestically in French servers outside the reach of foreign law. Access to CHOP is supposed to be restricted to government officials, but researcher Elliot Alderson, who goes by the hacker name Baptiste Robert, succeeded without much difficulty in getting himself an account he was in no way entitled to. So, back to the drawing board. Researchers at security firm Avira have found another way in which well-intentioned and useful backwards compatibility can cause problems. Vulnerable Excel 4.0 macros with bugs some 25 years old can still be exploited in current versions of Excel. Microsoft recommends upgrading to Microsoft Visual Basic for applications. Krebs on Security thinks the hackers behind the WePro attack may be a criminal gang, not necessarily a nation-state as much earlier speculation maintained. It appears that the hackers may have also targeted a number of other large IT firms, competitors of WePro, although with what success, if any, they had remains unclear. What were they after if they were regular crooks and not working for a foreign intelligence service? Well, bulls, for one thing, marketable PII on various individuals, and of course, they were after opportunities to work gift card scams. After all, the gift card scam is the gift that keeps on giving. 
Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Malek Ben-Salem. She's the Senior R&D Manager for Security at Accenture Labs. Malek, it's great to have you back. Um, you know, we, we recently had some news uh, that came out about uh, some groups that were making use of Facebook uh, rather than the dark web to sell tools and, uh, and tips and techniques for uh, folks who are up to no good. What's your take on this? Yeah, uh, early April, um, the Cisco TELUS Intelligence Group has reported on some Facebook groups uh, that uh, have some shady activity, perhaps even illegal activity. These included almost 400,000 members in about 74 groups, uh, which engaged in things like selling credit card numbers, uh, identity theft, selling forged IDs, wire fraud, tax fraud, DDoS attacks, you name it. What's interesting is that these groups were not hidden uh, with you know, a simple keyword search, you'd be able to identify them. And once you join one group with Facebook's current recommendation algorithm, you will be presented with uh, similar groups that engage in similar activity for you to join. Tell us try to take down these groups using Facebook's abuse reporting functionality. Some were immediately taken down. Others only had some specific posts removed. To me, this raises a question about the efficacy of uh, the abuse reporting function that uh, Facebook is relying on. It doesn't seem that it's working well, especially knowing that back in, in April of 2018, so a year ago, uh, the well-known security reporter Brian Krebs also alerted Facebook about dozens of Facebook groups uh, where hackers offered similar illegal services. 
I'm wondering, uh, do you have any insights on the difficulty of this? I mean, it seems as though when it comes to some things like pornography, for example, you know, Facebook doesn't seem to have any trouble uh, finding that sort of thing and and shutting it down quickly. But um, some of these other things that are are more speech driven, they seem to uh, be slower on the draw. Exactly, uh, and I, and I think that's why Facebook is is being criticized uh, about their reliance, total re- reliance on this model of you guys report uh, or you tell us when something is wrong. I think there is a, a lot to be done there, a lot to be improved. Again, especially if you if you're relying on if you can use a simple keyword uh, search to identify these groups. I think there is potential, uh, there is an opportunity for uh, Facebook to do more, to apply uh, artificial intelligence um, in order to detect such content and to take it down, um, you know, in a timely manner. Yeah, I, I have to admit it, it leaves me scratching my head. If if uh, if regular folks can find this stuff with just a keyword search, then, well, why isn't Facebook behind the scenes implementing systems that look for those keywords where it knows there could be problems and have someone take a look at it. Exactly. And we know they're they're reading the content, right? Uh, They're using it for profiling users and and presenting ads to users. So I think they have an opportunity to to build trust with their users and and to make sure that whatever they're reading uh, can be used to protect their own users um, from harm presented by these uh, hacker groups. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, interesting insights. Malek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. My pleasure. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Barbara Lawler. She's the Chief Privacy and Data Ethics Officer for Looker Data Sciences, a business analytics and intelligence firm. She's a leader in the data privacy world, having previously served as Chief Privacy Officer at Intuit and Hewlett-Packard. She holds leadership positions in a number of influential policy organizations and has testified before several U.S. congressional committees. Part of our debate is actually what does privacy and data protection mean in the context of American values, American business, American innovation? Mm. Actually, what do we mean by privacy? What are the outcomes of possible regulation or legislation? How is that balanced or should it be balanced against, uh, I think, what is the really unique American innovations that actually rely on pretty extensive use and reuse? of data about people or about their activities. So, I mean, what is the, uh, the historical foundation of how uh, Americans think about privacy? The historical 
historical foundations for many go back to some of the earlier waves of new technology. So there's, you will find discussions about when photography came into being in the late 19th century and what that meant in the public commons and in the private commons, if someone was capturing an image of you and then how was that image commercialized. As we moved into the age of computers, it became this topic around massive processing of data and the compilation of lists and identifying people by numbers. As we move into the internet and now cloud computing, it becomes what does that look like at scale and what does that look like when you can have massive scale, massive amounts of data, but also the reverse of that microscope is the ability to micro-target and in an incredibly detailed, almost down to the individual level. And that, what does that mean for our autonomy, uh, our ability to make our own choices about who we interact with, uh, the ability to control who, who we hang out with, who we associate with, and who decides that or who influences that. So there's some pretty fundamental questions that historically have been around those kinds of concepts. I think the challenges that we're facing are around what, it goes back to what are Amer American values uh, and what does it mean to have a free and open society, in particular in the United States where we place the highest value on free speech we place a high value on transparency, and what does that mean when information is used or misused for purposes that maybe a company wasn't clear about, either because they didn't want to be, or they didn't know how to be, or they didn't know that they should. You know, when we look at what's happening in California around CCPA, which I think it's important to underscore is still a work in progress, uh, there are at least 40 proposed amendments to adjust or tweak CCPA, so it's definitely not baked yet. Um, it just has a first round of baking. But when we look at, for example, what was CCPA trying to solve? CCPA was trying to solve issues around transparency and issues around control. Those actually aren't new issues, but how they manifest in social media and connected devices and what do we even know about how our data as individuals is used, monetized, reused, or shared, and should we know? Should we care? Should we have a say? And when should we have a say? You initially reached out to me because um, there are some misperceptions about CCPA uh, that you wanted to clear up. Um, what are some common uh, misperceptions there? Uh, one of the misperceptions is, is there a financial incentive for companies to comply? And I think there's some thinking that enforcement will be weak and that there isn't a lot of enforcement incentive. If you look at the potential range of fines as, they, as they've been proposed, uh, it's important to look at that is when it's per issue that it's also uh, per issue means per person. So let's say you have a database of 50,000 people that in some way was sold or shared in violation of CCPA, uh, whether it's $750 or 7,500, which is the max, 
that's a per line item fee. So if you do the math on the worst case, $7,500 per incident times 50,000 gets you to about $375 million. Mm. Uh, that is a significant financial incentive. I think the bigger incentive is the AGs actively uh, requested that there be private right of action, which means class action lawsuits. And we've seen class action lawsuits proliferate in other areas of I would say consumer protection and privacy protection. And I think the risk for both business and individuals there is that often class action lawsuits, there isn't a direct benefit to the actual consumer purported to protect. Uh, the, the benefit uh, may be to uh, fund use for education and perhaps funding for the, those law firms themselves. Mm. Uh, I think some of the other, not so much misperception about CCPA, but confusion is the definitions aren't clear. Uh, I think we're all hoping that the AG's office, that one of his areas of focus, as he stated, is to add clarity to the definitions. So are employees of organizations covered as consumers in California? The way it's worded now? Yes. Uh, will that change? Potentially. There's confusion about the definition of sell. You might say, I don't sell data. My company doesn't sell data, but right now the definition of sell is any exchange of value or consideration. So if mm. you're using a third-party vendor just to produce a podcast, for example, there is consideration, there is value exchanged. That's considered a sale. You probably don't think about it as a sale, but right now under CCPA, it is. So those are the things that aren't always clear to folks and I think need to be cleared up. The last one I would add is when a consumer requests what is a very large potential sample of information of what's, that's not really even a sample what's held about them, uh, it's for 12 months. So what that means is there is a 12 month look back. Did that look back start in January of 2019? Which means if you haven't started thinking about that or planning for that, you're already late. Will that start in January of 2020? Will the effective date change? Because the AG doesn't need to provide as his final guidance until July of 2020. So there are some interesting gaps that we hope will be closed that will add clarity on. When does a look back start? When will the effective date be? And some clarity around those definitions that I think will give companies a much stronger sense of confidence on the ability to actually comply with CCPA. What's your advice to people out there who are trying to get a better handle on this? So if I think... Uh, there's a sense that um, folks feel like they don't have control over their own data. I think the first thing is that there are some great resources in uh, a few different locations uh, online that, that can show you how to actually control your privacy settings. And these are basic things like uh, if you're not using a mobile app anymore, delete the app. Uh, change your location settings. Uh, one one of the, the, the best organizations, uh, Stay Safe Online, uh, particularly around Data Privacy Day, which happens in on January 28th every year, there's a tremendous amount of resources for individuals as consumers in a business context, uh, and also as, as parents, there's resources for teens, there's additional resources for, for teens. Uh, from the Cyber Angels organization, uh, which focuses on teens and kids. Girl Scouts has a program. Uh, you'll also see some pretty good resources 
for, from organizations like the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse based out of San Diego, California. So there are a lot of places to go. Uh, my advice is check your privacy settings and you can do that by going into the settings menu of your smartphone or the settings menu on the different web apps that you're using. And I think we're at a stage where less is more. And what I mean by that is if you looked at the average number of apps on somebody's smartphones, uh, they've kind of stagnated. And I think there's a great opportunity for folks to really take a look at, do I really need all of those apps? If I haven't used it in three months, I should just get rid of it because that just simplifies the opportunity for location tracking and data collection that I may not know about or may just not be comfortable about. That's Barbara Lawler. She's the Chief Privacy and Data Ethics Officer for Looker Data Sciences. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.